So the reading is from Ecclesiastes 6, uh, verse 9 till chapter 7, verse 14. And on the church Bible page, that'll be 674, 674. And it reads, Better what the eye sees than the rolling of the appetite. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Whatever exists has already been named, and what humanity is has been known. No one can contend with someone who is stronger. The more the words, the less the meaning, and how does that profit anyone? For who knows what is good for a person in life? during the few and meaningless days they pass through like a shadow. Who can tell them what will happen under the sun after they are gone? A good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of death better than the day of birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, for death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. Frustration is better than laughter, because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. It is better to heed the rebuke of a wise person than to listen to the song of fools. Like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. This too is meaningless. Extortion turns a wise person into a fool and the bribe corrupts the heart. The end of a matter is better than its beginning, and patience is better than pride. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. Do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. Wisdom, like an inheritance, is a good thing, and benefits those who see the sun. Wisdom is a shelter, as money is a shelter, but the advantage of knowledge is this. Wisdom preserves those who have it. Consider what God has done, who can straighten what he has made crooked. When times are good, be happy, but when times are bad, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other, therefore no one can discover anything about the future. It seems like we're going to be accompanied by that beeping throughout, so I hope that keeps you awake. Let's pray together. Um, Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, so much for uh, this, your word, and thank you that it speaks to us no matter what's going on in the world or even the room around us. And we pray today that you, by your spirit, would be with us, help us to listen, help us to obey. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Wisdom. Once I went to speak at a meeting away over on the other side of the country, um, at, uh, in, in a place called Newcastle. There's no need to ever go there, but um, <laughs> I'm only joking. Newcastle's lovely. I went to speak in a place called Newcastle, and I walked into the room where I was going to give my talk, and there was someone I knew, Chris, from Liverpool. Well, that's odd. So I said, went straight up to him and said, what are you doing here? He looked at me and said, I'm sorry. And he said, I said, what are you doing here? 
in Newcastle. He was like, am I not allowed to be in Newcastle? I said, you can be here if you want, but it just seems strange for you to be here. And he said, okay, and sort of went off and sat down. I gave my talk, the end. I went back to him and said, okay, I feel like I need to really talk to you about this now. Why are you here when you live in Liverpool? And he said, aha, I think you've met my identical twin brother, Chris. <laughs> now, when you realize what reality is, you can adjust to it, and that's called wisdom. I could have gone on, this guy's name is Ollie, Chris's twin. I could have gone on saying to him, Chris, why are you here? You look just like Chris, why are you here with me in Newcastle? But reality was, he wasn't Chris, he was Ollie. And the Bible calls wisdom adjusting the way you think and you live to reality when you discover it. The fool, the Bible talks about, is the person who tries to keep behaving the way they want to behave even though reality teaches them it's not going to work. The first few verses of the reading we had today, I hope you've got it open in front of you, sum up what we've been learning from this ancient book of wisdom, Ecclesiastes, so far. We had that in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 6. None of us really seem to make the progress in life that we want. We don't do it through learning, we don't do it through pleasure, we don't do it through wealth. And he says in verse 11, chatting about it all the time doesn't move us on either. None of us really make an impact or leave a legacy. That's the reality of life. And we as modern Western people find, disturb, find that disturbing because we've been told lots of times, oh no, your meaning and your purpose is very important. What you decide to achieve in life is matters a lot. But that's a very modern Western thing. A vast number of people in history have lived and died without the opportunity to enjoy their purpose. But they were still capable of living in a way that was wise, that God said was good. Anyway, that's what Ecclesiastes has said about life. And he said, given that that's true, we make so little impact, we leave so little legacy, there is still a way to live in the world that adapts to that being true about us. There's a way to be wise. There's a way to be foolish, which is to still say, I'm going to do whatever I can to make sure I get a legacy and I get what I want and I achieve what I want to achieve. That's foolish. But there is a way to be wise. It's to enjoy what's in front of you. That's why he said in verse 9, better what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite. It's better to have uh, to see what's good in front of you than to constantly be looking for something else. You don't control most of your life. And in fact, he said, it will make you restless. It will make you jittery. It might even make you immoral if you constantly think you can get what you want. Rather, enjoy what's in front of you here and now. That's what he said so far. And the big question that lots of people have been chatting to me about, I think you've probably been chatting to each other, is how do we do that? How do we come, become the type of people who are able to just enjoy what's in front of us rather than trying to control everything to get what we want all the time? 
And that's what this next section is about. It's about new ways to think that help us adjust to the way the world really is. And the way the world really is is this. You don't really control most of what is going to happen to you. As if an illustration, I did not plan to give this talk with incessant beeping in the background. But there we go. We're going to have to adjust to reality. And here's the first thing that we see in chapter 7. We learn more from death than birth. Chapter 7, verse 1. A good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of death better than the day of birth. What a strange thing to say. If you've recently had to go to, like, I don't know, one day a gender reveal party, or to visit someone with a new baby or something, and then the next day go to a funeral, verse 1 will seem extremely odd to you. We think, of course, a birth is better than a death. What is he talking about? It'd be possible to read that very morbidly. You know, he's saying it's better to be dead than to be alive. Some of us feel like that some way, sometimes I think, but he's definitely not saying that. He is very pro the enjoyment of life, as we've discovered in the rest of the book. What he's saying is this, if your purpose is to live well and to live wisely, to adjust the way you live to the way the world really is, to have a character that receives each day what God has given you now with thankfulness, death is a better teacher than birth. He's saying, listen, you can't make any judgment about someone's wisdom on the day of their birth. They're just... A baby, they haven't done anything yet. Your birth teaches you nothing about who you will become. It only teaches you that you're alive. The path to living well will come much more about considering the end of your life and what will be said then than it will by considering the beginning. That's why he says, mourning, in verse 2, teaches us more about how to live than feasting. Why, in verse 2? Because death is the destiny of everyone, and the living should take this to heart. Now, we don't like talking about death. It's a cultural thing. There are Victorians love talking about death. In our culture, we don't talk about it much. But he says really taking to heart that the day of your death is coming someday will help you live well now. If you really want to know how to make the right choices to enjoy what God has given you, here's your first guide. Chasing your desires to get what you want today makes the world worse for you and for everyone else. Trying to control your life so that you will have some great impact you've decided you want to have. That's a fool's job because you don't get to control the future. No, instead, we think about what would make a good life at the end. The risk of realizing that you don't leave an impact on anything is that you can become a very superficial person. Uh, some people have said that to me as we've discussed Ecclesiastes. Isn't this just saying, well, you can't make any difference, so you should just roll along, eat and drink, tomorrow we die because your life doesn't make any difference. That's not reality. That's just denying that there's an end and saying, I'm just going to live for now. It's pretending death isn't coming. It's ignoring the day of mourning. 
No, he says, think about what you would want saying about you when you have died. That is how you'll decide a good life now. Once, years and years and years ago, I got invited to a seminar about setting life goals. I do not know why I was invited to that. But there was someone in my discussion group who was very successful in their field. So if you'd thought of that field that he was in, you would have thought of him as a successful person. And one of the things they made us do in the discussion was say, what do you want people to say about you when you've died? This was to help us set our life goals. And Ecclesiastes would say, that's a good exercise. And this person, this very successful person said three words, a good father. Well, afterwards, I met someone who knew that person and I said, isn't it nice that they said what all of those things they've achieved and what they'd want on their gravestone is a good father. And this person who knew them said, yes, otherwise known as wishful thinking because that is not what they were like to their family at all. They'd had plenty of days feasting their great successes, but the day of mourning would have been a much better teacher. They'd never listened to that day. Too busy feasting their successes. He says, if you adjust to your life being very temporary and mostly out of your control, you'll be able to live enjoying what is good now. And maybe you have met someone who's like this, who has adjusted to the fact life is a beautiful and temporary gift from God. They're not morbid, but they're not superficial. They know each day is a gift. They enjoy what they have without restlessly longing for more grasping to make their life better and hurting other people in the process, no, someone who's really thought this through and let it settle, taken it to heart, will be a deep person. Will think each moment of this life is to be treasured for what it is, not what it can achieve for me. Someone who has laid this to heart will have right what actually matters, not controlled by what they want now, but guided by the type of person they want to be. I just want to say two little caveats to that before we move on. The first thing is to say we are so twisted in our culture, we could end up writing, wanting to write really stupid things in our tombstone. I saw someone recently saying, when I get to the end of my life, what I want someone to say about me is that I was always my authentic self. Well, that would be a very unwise obituary because it's impossible. It's a chasing after the wind, is Ecclesiastes 5. You never feel authentic. And it won't make any difference to the world whether you're authentic or not. But you could hurt a lot of people on the way. Second thing I want to say as a caveat is if you're a Christian, you're trusting Jesus, your death is not your Lord. There's no fear of death for a Christian, someone who trusts Jesus. I mean, it's not to say real Christians never fear death, just in case you're facing death, you feel scared, that does happen. But there's no uh, finality to death if you're a Christian, and you can be assured of that. But death will be where we give everything back to God. The Bible describes us 
casting our crowns, our achievements before him. And so it's good even for Christians to think, well, what do I want to give back? That would be a better teacher than the day of my birth. I don't want to present the Lord with some mess that I've made for other people, endlessly chasing the wind. But at least, Lord, I was my authentic self. Not what I want to give back. Second thing that Ecclesiastes tells us in this passage, we learn more from hardship than laughter. I was talking to some family members recently about their groups of friends they meet up with. They said, this group, when we get together, have really serious and important conversations where we challenge and push each other and we talk about real things. But there's a particular family who sometimes come and join us. And when they come, we have a great laugh. But they don't want to talk about anything serious. Well, people in that group of friends are going through very hard things at the moment. Things where they need wisdom. They need help. They need to know how to adjust to fit in with the world that they're facing. And they are not turning to the friends they only ever have a laugh with. That's verse 6 says this. I love this image. Like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. It's saying you can light something under your pot that makes lots of noise and it will burn quickly, but it won't heat your food. It won't do any good for you. And so he says, frustration in verse 3 is better than laughter. A sad face is good for the heart. The heart in the Bible doesn't just mean feelings like we use it. Oh, my heart. You know, I just mean I'm feeling something. It means your whole self. And he's saying feeling sad and frustrated and doing things that are hard is better for making you a wise person than laughter. Hardships will make you better at enjoying what is in front of you. They will teach you to be wise if you let them. Now, Ecclesiastes is very pro-joy and laughter. So he's not saying we should all be miserable all the time. But he is saying a life committed to seeking pleasure, having laughs, is not going to lead you to a good and wise life. Now, let's just pause again and think for a minute. He does not mean you need to seek hardship. There have been strains of Christianity that are very anti-pleasure. And Ecclesiastes is not that. He said so much already, and we'll say more about, enjoy food, enjoy wine, enjoy the sunshine, enjoy creation. He is not anti-pleasure, but he is against what most of us are doing most of the time, which is trying to structure all of life to avoid hardship and frustration and seek pleasure. And he says... That will not lead to a wise life. You can't control everything around you to make yourself happy. And if you try, you'll damage yourself and other people. Think about decisions you might be faced with. People ask me about or that you might have to make. I'm do at uni doing this course and it's very hard and I miss being at home. I would be happier if I gave it up and left. And we are just programmed to assume 
the better path will be the more pleasurable one. Now, I can't make that decision for you. It might be wise or not wise, but in terms of becoming a person who can live rightly before God, frustration will be better than pleasure. Well, we are so cooped up in this little house. Life would be easier in a bigger house. We assume the better path will be the easier one with the bigger house. Now, I can't make that decision for you. But in terms of becoming a wise person, frustration will lead you there better than pleasure. Or two very common ones. There's this group of people in my life who aren't Christians, and they are more fun. Particularly, it might be this man or this woman is romantically interested in me and they're not a Christian and he, do, he or she doesn't challenge me and their group of friends, they're not weird or awkward like people at church and they don't talk for as long and there's not incessant beeping in the background, whatever it is. There's more fun with them. Ecclesiastes says, listen, the laughter of fools makes a lot of noise but doesn't heat your food. You can fill life with people like that, but you won't be getting any wiser. Or maybe the other way around, the opposite thing. Maybe for you, oh, hanging out with people who aren't Christians is tricky for me. I just have such a laugh with my Christian friends, even though all we do is like mostly talk rubbish to each other. It's the crackling of thorns under a pot. Or, again, my marriage is so hard and this other person is interested in me and they're so much fun and they're so interesting and they make me laugh. You know, I could go on. Yes, there have been crazy Christians who are anti-pleasure. And the default is to think, I want fun and laughter and to let the people who give me that welcome me. And so we say, oh, Christians are just anti-my pleasure. We are not anti-enjoying God's good gifts, but we're so used to just choosing what we think we can control to get what we want, we make terrible and wise decisions. Third thing that we see, death and hardship make you receive wisdom. It is that time of year again, I always use this as a sermon illustration, it never gets old, The Apprentice. I don't know whether you watch The Apprentice, Every time I watch that program, I wonder, have the people who volunteer to be in it, so it's basically some people, they go and they try to impress a man so he'll invest money in their business. Have the people who have been in it, have they ever watched it before? Because they make exactly the same mistakes that the people last year made. It's a very, very predictable program. Not every task they're set. You can say, oh, I know how they're going to get this wrong. But I think what happens is this. If you think or have convinced yourself that you are super successful, super brilliant, that you never get anything wrong, that you're going to live forever and make your mark on the world, if you're that type of person, you don't think you need advice. You don't think you need to watch the previous programs and learn from them. Why would you? You're this amazing history-making person. But it's when things are hard, when you face the ultimate problem, death, you need wise words to speak to you. You look for people to give you help. Now, of course, 
You can't just keep going to look for the laughter of fools. Some people do that as a response to hard things. But I think if you really accept that your life is limited in time and you're facing hardship, that's the moment you have a chance to look at wise people and get them honestly to give you help. So he says, it is better to heed the rebuke of a wise person than listen to the song of fools. Now that's something that sounds obviously true. Of course it's better to listen to a wise person telling you you're getting things wrong than to listen to fools laughing away in the background. Seems obviously true. I'd hardly know anybody who is actually practicing that. Most of us, even if we receive the mildest rebuke from someone we respect, delivered in the kindest, most positive way, most of us, we still get angry and annoyed if that happens. You know, far from looking for wise people and inviting them to rebuke us, someone might gently say something in the quietest possible way, and we're furious. More than that, when then we tend to freeze out and avoid those people because they make us feel awkward. We love the song of fools. People who sing what feels happy and nice to us. We love that. We're even encouraged. You know, uh, one of the things we're told in society now is find people who will affirm you. Affirmation is nice. I'm not saying it's bad, but it's not seeking out the rebuke of the wise. It's just hearing the song of fools. So, he says, look for someone when you see that life is hard, when there's mourning, when there's difficulty. Look for someone you consider to be wise and seek their rebuke. Imagine if we all did that today. Find someone you consider to be wise and say, I want you to tell me what you think I'm getting wrong. And I will not get angry or end our friendship, or freeze you out if you do it honestly. That is how we'll learn to live in God's world. And if life is hard, and you're considering the purpose and the meaning of life isn't helping you, which it probably isn't, because as he says, it's very difficult to find that. Instead of considering that, find a wise person and ask them to tell you clearly what you are getting wrong and need to change. Heed their advice. Fourth thing he says, your immediate desires aren't helping. Recently, a few people in church, I didn't go, but a few people in church went to see a very famous actor playing Macbeth. Was that right? It was Macbeth, wasn't it? Here in Liverpool, he was here playing Macbeth. Macbeth's a very interesting play, if you've ever read it. It basically could be summed up as, be careful what you wish for. So he's told he's going to become king, and then he ends up like basically murdering everybody so he can become king and stay king. He gets what he wants, but his desires have not led him in a wise direction. Ecclesiastes has been saying that throughout. Whatever you're currently wishing for, the writer says, I've tried it already. It won't give you the satisfaction you're craving, and it won't leave a mark on the world. And so in this section, he gives a series of behaviors that means centering your own wishes and says, listen, none of them are going to help you live a wise life. So, verse 7, people who love money so much that they will take it instead of doing the right thing will not make wise decisions. 
if your driver is to get as much stuff as possible, you're not going to live in a good way. Or impatient people, the end of the matter is better than its beginning, and patience is better than pride. He's saying it's better to finish something than to start lots of things. But proud people, impatient people, don't accept that. But they don't live wisely. He says, people who are easily angered don't make wise decisions. He says, don't be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. Angry people generally don't make wise decisions, whether that's like, I flip off the edge easily, or you're treasuring some secret, ongoing anger or bitterness towards someone in particular. You're not going to live a wise way. And this fourth one was quite surprising to me. I'd never seen it mentioned in the Bible before. But nostalgia doesn't help you make good decisions. Do not say, why were the old days better than these? I love that. I tend to not think of nostalgia as bad. I love a bit of nostalgia. Oh, remember in my 20s, life was so wonderful. Christians do a great, you know, a great deal of nostalgia. Oh, today the world is going to hell in a handbasket, but generations ago everything was better. Really brilliant. Ecclesiastes just says, don't do that. It doesn't help you make good decisions. Endlessly harking back to somewhere you can't get to just makes you moan about today. And that is not wisdom. I am sure you know people who seem to have enough, a good family, a productive ministry, but whose wisdom was totally overcome by, I don't know, a gambling addiction. The love of money turns a wise person into a fool. Or you can think of people you know who started out in ministry young and so well, they were affected and gifted, but they were impatient with the day-to-day -day grind of tough middle age. They thought, thought the start was better than the end, and so made unwise decisions. Or people you've known who are really genuinely hurt by someone else in the past, and they're generally a nice person, but when it comes to that person they feel bitter with, it's like a red mist covers their eyes. They start behaving in a horrible, malicious, unwise way. Or I can think of lots of people I know who are convinced that the best days of the church are in the past. Why can't today be like yesterday? And they don't make wise decisions at all about how to reach the world today with the gospel. How do we get wise? We think about the shortness of life. We learn from hard things. We ask wise people to rebuke us. How would, what would not make us wise? Loving money, too proud to finish what we started, getting anger or treasuring anger, being nostalgic. Here's the last thing that he says. You don't sort it out. All of this wisdom is to help you adjust living in the world under the sun, where most things we're told that matter just don't matter. And he's saying you just need to adjust to that. But let's just be clear, he is not saying if you learn to live this way, you'll have a really purposeful, productive, satisfying life 
where you saw everything out around you. After giving all this wisdom, he says in verse 13, consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? For good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. Christians are not being told, well, Christians are told, but they're told wrongly. I'm not saying deal well with life and you'll be able to not struggle with meaninglessness, not struggle with grief, not struggle with a hard day's work. Sometimes I think we've been told that if you'd only done it the really wise right way, life wouldn't be crooked, life would be straight. But that is not what he's saying. He's saying, um, you can learn how to live wisely in the world, but you're not going to straighten everything out around you. That's God's job. It's above your pay grade. You don't get to do that. I was reading a book with the interns recently. It was a very helpful picture. He said, we think wisdom is like sitting at a train station and being the station controller, controlling where all the trains will go. And we think that's what a wise life would be, being able to make sure everything is in the right place at the right time. That's God's job. You're more like a trained driver. You need to learn when something comes towards you, like a red light, how you should react rightly to it. That's the wisdom you can learn. It's not your job to try and straighten out what God has made crooked. Even living a wise life will not make everything go well for you and people around you. The point of wisdom we're discovering in Ecclesiastes is to honor God with what he's given us. Not because it's some sort of way to help us have a better life. You know, Jesus was the greatest wisdom teacher ever. And in his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, he says lots of things like Ecclesiastes, about all the things we've been talking about, about anger, about money, talks about all of those things, our desires and how they lead us astray. But this is how Jesus starts his sermon of wisdom. He says this, blessed, happy are the poor in spirit. And what he's saying there is, you start the journey of wisdom by admitting that God is greater than you and you're just a creature sitting under him. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. To be rich in spirit is to be like, yeah, look at me. I'm going to conquer the world. I'm going to make a mark. Jesus says, that's not the way to blessedness, to happiness. Happy people are people who can look humbly at themselves. And here's what Jesus says. If you will see your own weakness, if you will hand your life to him to run, then you will be adjusting to the true reality. That means you can live the right way in the world. And not because that will achieve great things for you, but because God is real. Adjusting to his reality is just the right way to live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for uh, giving us ways to live in your world. We thank you that you are God and we are not. And 
we're glad that we get to hand the running of the world over to you. And we pray that you would help us to know our place in the best way possible, cared for by you. We pray that you will help us be poor in spirit, humble before you, and therefore live in good and right and God-honoring ways. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.